everyone. Welcome back to the Logical Bible Study Podcast. Thank you for tuning in again. This is the podcast where we look at the gospel reading from the Mass of today, and we really want to do a thorough exegesis on the text. We want to pull it apart so we can understand what the author was trying to get at. Today we're looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Thomas, called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. When the disciples said, We have seen the Lord, he answered, Unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands, and can put my finger into the holes they made, And unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. Eight days later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were closed, but Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he spoke to Thomas. Put your finger here. Look, here are my hands. Give me your hand, put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. Thomas replied, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You believe because you can see me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. There were many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And the believing this, you may have life through his name. So there's a lot going on in this passage. Let's start by thinking about the context. So it's Easter Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene has just seen Jesus in the form of the gardener. And she runs back and tells the apostles. And in between this time, John doesn't narrate it, but the other gospel writers do. We have the road to Emmaus appearance. And so what we're about to see in our passage from John chapter 20 is the fifth appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, and then the sixth appearance as well. So verse 19, in the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, so it's Easter Sunday, they call that Sunday the first day of the week in that culture, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So the disciples are in some big room in Jerusalem, And they're afraid that the Jewish authorities are going to come and get them. Think about this state of mind. The disciples are probably in shock after they've seen the Jewish authorities put Jesus to death. And they're probably worried that the Jews will want to get rid of them, his followers, as well. But while they're in the room with the door closed, Jesus came and stood among them. Now, even though the doors are locked, somehow Jesus appears out of nowhere in the room. And this is the fulfillment of many of the promises that he's given to them earlier. He said to the apostles in chapter 14, I will come back to you. 
So this is the fulfillment of that. And the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. He knows that they'll be in shock, so he gives them a friendly greeting. And the word here for peace is the Hebrew shalom. And obviously, if you know your Bible, there's a lot packed into that. It basically has strong connotations about reconciliation between God and man, which is what Jesus has come to bring. He showed his hands in his side, so he wants to prove to them that he's not a ghost. We, that becomes clear if you look at Luke's version of this um, appearance of Jesus. He wants them to know that he's not a ghost. You can re- read Luke 24 for that. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. So finally, this group of apostles who hadn't believed up till now, they finally believe late on Easter Sunday evening and they're overjoyed. They realize that Jesus truly has risen bodily. Now, Jesus now gives them a commission. He kind of changes the topic here a bit. And the commission, as we'll see, is to forgive sins in his name. Verse 21, as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. This is an important verse. The Son, Jesus, was sent by the Father. We know that from John chapter 12. Now, Jesus, the Son, is going to send the apostles to continue the same mission that he was given from the Father. So, the apostles' mission is actually an extension of the Son's mission that he was given from the Father. And in particular, the mission that he's thinking of is the one about forgiving sins. Early in the Gospels, we see that the Father has given the Son power on earth to forgive sins. Now this power is going to transfer to the apostles themselves. Verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is a special gift personally given from Jesus directly to the apostles. It's not given to all believers, it's given to the apostles. And he breathes on them, very physical language. And that recalls especially Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, where God breathes new life into man. So in a sense, by breathing on them, Jesus signifies that he's passing on the authority that he has. It's kind of similar to laying on of hands. As part of this new creation, he's breathing new life. He's transferring his own power to forgive sins into the apostles. So it's really cool. There's a lot of imagery coming together here. Now, the Holy Spirit, he, it says, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned before, and particularly at Jesus' baptism, the Holy, the Holy Spirit overshadows Jesus. Now, it's being imparted from Jesus to the apostles as a gift for the first time. This is the first time where the apostles as a group get exposed to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that this is not Pentecost. You'll see some progressive scholars saying that This is John's version of the Pentecost event. This is not the Pentecost event. Um, The Pentecost event happens much later in the book of Acts. And in fact, the Catechism makes it clear, as we'll see, that this is not the Pentecost event. This is a different outpouring of the Spirit. And this is what Jesus says to them. This is his commission. Verse 23. I'll read the whole phrase. For whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For whose sins you retain, they are retained. Now, this is a very significant verse for Catholic theology and one that we need to talk about more, I think. So, for whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Remember, Jesus is saying this to the apostles. The context and the Greek text here indicates that the apostles themselves now are being given binding and loosing authority 
for forgiveness of sins. Sometimes you'll see other non-Catholic Christians try and explain this verse by saying that what Jesus is saying is that essentially God is going to forgive sins and then the apostles are going to detect it and then the apostles will just know and then they'll pass that information on to people. That's not what the context is suggesting. It's... What's going on here is the other way around. Jesus is saying that if the apostles determine that someone's sins should be forgiven, then God will forgive them. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not that God forgives someone first and then the apostles learn about it. That's not what the Greek text is saying. The Greek is making it clear that the apostles themselves have the power to forgive sins because Jesus has given them that power. So here's how it's going to work in practice, is what Jesus is saying. When the apostles choose to forgive someone's sins, God will forgive their sins. God will ratify their decision. And this is an extension of the binding and loosing that Jesus had already given them earlier in Matthew chapter 16. And then the second half of this phrase is, for whose sins you retain, they are retained. So notice Jesus also gives the power to the apostles to refuse forgiveness to people in certain situations. He's saying that in certain situations, if you choose not to forgive someone's sins, then God won't forgive their sins either. This is strong language, but it seems to be what Jesus is saying. And notice again the clear biblical teaching here, that forgiveness of sins is not automatic, it's not guaranteed. There's certain things we have to do to get forgiveness of sins. Christians, Some Christians don't like that teaching, um, but we need to be clear that it does appear to be biblical. Now, one interesting bit of information that comes from this, if you think about it, if Jesus is saying to the apostles, you now have the power to forgive sins, the practice of confession, as as Catholics think of it, that has changed throughout the ages. What the confessional looks like has changed. How a person approaches a priest to get forgiveness has changed in the Catholic Church throughout 2,000 years. But scholars point out that this passage, at least at a minimum, implies that if Jesus expects his apostles to do some sort of confession, um, to do some sort of confession setup, because how else are they going to know whether to forgive someone's sins if they don't know what the sins are? You notice, do you see that there? So Jesus is sort of implying that in the future, people are going to have to tell the apostles their sins because how can the apostles forgive their sins if they don't know what they are? So there's a subtle hint here that Jesus is setting up the sacrament of reconciliation or confession. Now, usually the Catholic Church doesn't provide an official interpretation of any biblical text. Usually it leads it up to scholars to work out what the most likely meaning is. And in this podcast, we talk about different interpretations of texts But this passage, John chapter 20, verse 23, that we're looking at, the church has officially given a pronouncement on what it means, at least at a minimum. So at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the church defined this passage and said that this is the institution of the sacrament of penance. Here's a quote from the Council of Trent about this passage. The Lord instituted the sacrament of penance principally when after his resurrection he breathed upon his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So that's the quote um, from Council of Trent. And the universal teaching of the fathers has always acknowledged uh, 
that by such a sublime action and by such clear words, the power of forgiving and retaining sins was given to the apostles and their lawful successors, the bishops, for reconciling the faithful who have fallen after baptism. So that's been the constant teaching of the church is that at this moment in the room in Jerusalem, Jesus gives them the power to do confession and to forgive sins. So there's a lot in that. Let's move on. Verse 24, Thomas, called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So he might have been out running errands in Jerusalem, maybe. So when the disciples said, we have seen the Lord, he answered, unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands and can put my finger into the holes they made, and unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. So Jesus has been pierced in his hands and in his feet, although you wouldn't be able to see Jesus' feet most of the time, and Jesus' side as well. So it seems that Thomas suspects that what's... He listens to their story because he wasn't there, and he suspects that the other apostles have seen a ghost or a vision. And he wants physical proof that Jesus has indeed bodily risen before he's going to believe it. So the language he uses here is, I need to put my hands into the holes in his body. So it's not that Thomas disbelieves them completely. He probably believes that they saw something. But in order for him to believe that Jesus is bodily risen, that as in he's got a physical body, he's physically risen again, which is quite a strange belief for Jews to believe, then he wants to physically see and touch the actual marks on Jesus' actual body. That's what he's asking for. Now, that's not necessarily a bad attitude to have because, you know, that's a common response. I just want to see some physical proof and then I'll believe. But the issue is because he's one of the apostles who's traveled with Jesus for three and a half years, he should have known that Jesus would rise again because Jesus has been saying that all along. So the suggestion here is it's not that Thomas is being irrational. It's just that his faith is lacking. He should have known better than this as one of the apostles. So we shouldn't see him as, you know, the worst, most illogical, doubting person ever. But we should see him as someone who should have had more faith than he did at this particular time. Verse 26, eight days later. So by Jewish reckoning, we're now talking about the following Sunday because they counted days a little differently. So it's the following Sunday. The disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. The doors were closed, but Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. So it's a very similar situation to the first time, but now Thomas is with them. Notice that this time the disciples are not said to be afraid. This time, apparently, they've received joy and confidence from Jesus last time, although they still keep the doors closed. Verse 27, Jesus spoke to Thomas. So Jesus apparently knows what Thomas said last time, and This is actually an act of compassion. It's not an act of humiliation that he's about to do. He's about to give Thomas an opportunity to have the same experience that the other disciples have. He wants to bring Thomas up to the same level as the other apostles. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. Look, here are my hands. Give me your hand. Put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. So it's not stated here in the text, but apparently Thomas probably did get to touch him at this point because Thomas then replies, my Lord and my God. And that's a really significant statement from a theological perspective. So 
In the Greek here, Thomas says Kyrios and Theos. And this matches many Old Testament phrases where God is called the Lord God. Thomas here puts them together, my Lord and my God. He's calling Jesus his Lord and his God. This is really significant. He basically is recognizing that Jesus uh, is indeed risen. He's physically risen. And from that, he concludes that not only is Jesus his Lord or master, but also that he's God himself. That's profound. We have here quite a strong teaching that the apostles believed Jesus to be God. At least Thomas did. Verse 29, Jesus says to him, You believe because you have seen me. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, the Greek here for happy can be translated blessed. Blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. So Jesus seems to be saying that those who are able to believe in Jesus without physical proof will have God's blessings. So it's quite, apparently it's quite a virtue to have that kind of faith without the physical proof. And this would apply to all Christians that John was writing to and all Christians today who do not get to physically see Jesus. If we believe in Jesus without physically seeing him and touching him, then that is a virtuous thing and God will bless us as a result. So John probably includes this story. Remember, the gospel authors chose not to include certain stories, but John decided he wants to include this story in here, possibly because some in his audience thought along a similar line to Thomas, and they wanted physical proof before they would believe. John wants them to be in this category of people where Jesus says, blessed is he who is seen and yet uh, who is not seen and yet believes. John wants his audience to be like that. So that's the end of that story, but now John adds in some editorial comments as a conclusion to the resurrection appearances. So verse 30, he says, There were many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. So that's an interesting comment there from John. Jesus, uh, John says that Jesus apparently did lots of other stuff in this time period that we don't even know about. John physically can't write everything down. And the reason is because in that culture, and it's important from an uh, exegesis perspective to understand this, it was very expensive to write scrolls and to have scrolls copied. So if you're going to write a gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did, they couldn't write an infinitely long gospel. They couldn't include all of the stories they knew about Jesus. It was too expensive. So they had to pick and choose which stories they wanted to include. So, but he tells us which stories he does include in verse 31. John says, these are are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John tells us he's deliberately chosen to include events from Jesus' life, which specifically show that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God. Those are the stories that John has decided to include, and he's left some other ones that are less relevant to that goal out. And he goes on, and that, believing this, you may have life through his name. So that's quite beautiful. Here we learn John's ultimate goal in writing his gospel. He wants his audience to come to a knowledge of the truth and to have true and everlasting life through Jesus. He wants them to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is risen. And that if we come to believe in that, we have we develop the power to become the children of God. And we see that in chapter one of John. John wants his audience to have participation in the divine communion with God. 
to have true and everlasting life. That's John's goal. He's a true evangelist. Uh, now, when he says believing, he says in that believing you might have life in his name. We just need to keep in mind the word believing in that culture was not an intellectual thing. It's equivalent to what today we would call trusting. So those Bible verses in the New Testament which say, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved, it doesn't mean accept the proposition that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. It's not an intellectual, yes, I agree with this statement. That's not what belief is in the New Testament. Belief in the New Testament is to surrender to that proposition, to fully give oneself over and trust in this system of belief. So John, uh, just as the apostles like John had an encounter with the risen Lord, John hopes that his readers will have a similar encounter through his own gospel. He's written his gospel so that people can have an encounter with Christ. That's John's purpose as the evangelist. So where does the catechism refer to this? Everywhere. It's all over the place, this passage from John chapter 20. Um, We can't cover all of the passages, but I want to highlight some of the ones which are most relevant. So, paragraph 645, we have a discussion here about Christ's risen humanity. It says, By means of touch and the sharing of a meal, the risen Jesus establishes direct contact with his disciples. He invites them in this way to recognize that he is not a ghost, and above all, to verify the risen body in which he appears to them is the same body that had been tortured and crucified for it still bears the traces of his passion. Yet at the same time, this authentic, real body possesses the new properties of a glorious body, not limited by space and time, but able to be present how and when he wills. For Christ's humanity can no longer be confined to earth and belongs henceforth only to the Father's divine realm. So we see both aspects of that paragraph in our passage today. We see the marks of Jesus' physical body, and we see the fact that he can appear and disappear at will after his resurrection. Then there's a lot said in the Catechism, a lot said about when Jesus breathes on them and gives them the power to forgive sins. Paragraph 1120 is about the sacraments, and it says, The ordained priesthood guarantees that it really is Christ who acts in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit for the church. The saving mission entrusted by the Father to his incarnate Son was committed to the apostles and through them to their successors. They received the Spirit of Jesus to act in his name and in his person. So that's important to keep in mind. The apostles act in Jesus' name and the bishops, their successors, continue to do that. Paragraph 1441 is in the discussion about how only God forgives sins. It says, Only God forgives sins. But since he is the Son of God, Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and exercises this divine power by saying, your sins are forgiven. Further, by virtue of his divine authority, he gives this power to men to exercise in his name. So that paragraph in the Catechism confirms what we said in the podcast about Jesus received the power to forgive sins from the Father, And he passes that power here in John chapter 20 on to the apostles. Paragraph 858 is a discussion about the apostles. It says, Jesus is the father's emissary. From the beginning of his ministry, he called to him those whom he desired. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles to be with him and to be sent out to preach. 
From then on, they would also be his emissaries, Greek apostoloi. In them, Christ continues his own mission. Quote, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. The apostles' ministry is the continuation of his mission. Jesus said to the twelve, he who receives you receives me. So that last bit there about how the apostles continue Jesus' mission explains a lot of the book of Acts. A lot of people say the book of Acts is basically the fifth gospel because it continues what Jesus was doing. Paragraph 976 is a discussion about forgiving sins. It says the Apostles' Creed associates faith in the forgiveness of sins, not only with faith in the Holy Spirit, but also with faith in the church and in the communion of saints. It was when he gave the Holy Spirit to his apostles that the risen Christ conferred on them his own divine power to forgive sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So again, that passage quotes John chapter 20 as the moment in which Jesus gives them the power to forgive sins. There's a couple more paragraphs in there as well. And then in paragraph 1287, we have a discussion about confirmation, the sacrament of confirmation. It says, The fullness of the Spirit was not to remain uniquely the Messiah's, but was to be communicated to the whole Messianic people. On several occasions, Christ promised this outpouring of the Spirit, a promise which he fulfilled first on Easter Sunday and then more strikingly at Pentecost. So again, that confirms what we said earlier. On Easter Sunday, what we saw here in John chapter 20, it's the first outpouring of the Spirit from Jesus to the apostles. And then later at Pentecost, there's a second outpouring and they have different purposes. Lastly, we'll look at paragraph 514. Remember what John says at the end of this passage about his purpose in writing the gospel? There's this really beautiful paragraph in the Catechism. Paragraph 514 says many things about Jesus of interest to human curiosity do not figure in the gospels. Almost nothing is said about his hidden life at Nazareth, and even a great part of his public life is not recounted. What is written in the gospels was set down there, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name. So that quote there from John 20, where John tells us his purpose in writing the Gospels, the Catechism takes that as the answer to why we don't have information about certain parts of Jesus' life. So this passage from John chapter 20 is really important, as you can see, for Catholic theology. That is the end of today's discussion. If you've learned something new and you think others would benefit, please share it with them. I would be really grateful. And consider becoming a patron. There's all sorts of awesome exclusives available to you. Please have a look at the show notes to get more information about how you can get access to those exclusive episodes um, and other resources. And all of that information is in the show notes. We'll see you again for more exegesis tomorrow. Thank you.